So tonight as we are coming to the end of the retreat and are about to enter into our worldly life, tonight I wanted to talk about the play of intention and letting go, or action and surrender. In the essential teachings of the Buddha, the teachings of the Four Noble Truths are sort of the nutshell. It's it's the teachings in the nutshell. And at the beginning of the retreat, I mentioned these. The first Noble Truth being that there is suffering in life. The second truth being the cause of that suffering, which is our attachment, our holding, craving. And the third truth is the possibility of the end of that suffering, the freedom from that suffering in this life. And the fourth truth is the way. The Buddha mapped out the way. And this is called the Eightfold Noble Path. And in the Eightfold Noble Path, one of the pathways is what's called wise thought or intention. The, I'll just tell you what the eightfold path is. There's two factors that have to do with the development of wisdom, that is wise understanding and wise thought or intention, which is what I'd like to focus on tonight. And then there's three pathways for ethical considerations, which are wise speech and wise action, which are the five ethical guidelines that we follow here on the retreat, not taking any life of a living being, not saying that which isn't true, being watchful of our sexual activities, not taking anything which isn't given to us, and not indulging in any intoxicants or substances that cloud the mind. The Buddha lays these out in one of his pathways on wise action. And the third of the ethical pathways is wise livelihood. And then there's three on meditation and concentration, which is wise effort, wise or right mindfulness, and wise concentration. And each one of these are explained in the text, and uh, each one of us are guided in a particular way towards how to live more consciously and fully according to the teachings. I find for living in the world that the area around intention, intentionality, is very important and has been a very significant teaching for me both in the deepening of my understanding and wisdom, as well as living more consciously and harmoniously in the world. In the the factor of wise thought, it's either translated as thought or intention. And that's because intention or thought really have a similar kind of force or energy. And it is the force or energy that impels action. 
when we look closely, we can see that before we act, something happens. If we look closely, oftentimes we're not looking very closely. We just find ourselves involved in actions, and we don't really understand how these actions are coming about. But when we look closely, we can actually see that there may be a thought that arises before we actually take action. Or sometimes we may just feel um, kind of a, a, a contraction or a pulling in of the, of the energy and the muscles before we begin to act. So sometimes we might say the intention is that about-to moment, the moment before we take the action. So sometimes it'll be just be an energetic impulse. We can just feel the body just moving, you know, just in a particular way. And we may be aware enough that we say, no, I don't want to <laughs> do that, whether it's a more of an aggressive kind of action or whether it may be some act of affection. We can just feel the movement of the body and just maybe catch ourselves and pull back if we think it's maybe wise not to act in that way at that time. Other times we may not catch it at all, and then down the way we go, oh, why did I do that, you know? We, didn't, we weren't aware at all of what was involved. And sometimes it's much more gross. We can really catch the thought behind it. There's a, either a, a quick thought or there may be a whole sequence of thoughts, and then we make a decision, we make a conscious choice to act. So sometimes it's more of a, uh, of a uh, has a little more time involved, a little more, uh, it's a little more gross, and we can see the whole thing. Sometimes it's more quick and spontaneous. But nevertheless, if we take a look, we can actually catch the moment before we act. And if we can catch that moment before we act, then we can have an effect on the consequences of our actions. We see that there's the intention, the action, and the result, or the consequence, the consequence of our actions. All of our actions have consequences. Every act in the universe has a, a consequence. Intention, action, result. And as I said, we often have no idea of how, why things happen the way they happen. It just can often seem like just a big mess. Of, we often just find ourselves in a big mess of things. But it can be broken down. I mean, through awareness, we can see how the thoughts arise, and how results happen. Awareness has a quality or a characteristic that's called discrimination. One of the characteristics of clear awareness is discrimination. The ability to see and know the difference between which thoughts are going to lead to more happiness and harmony, and which actions are going to lead to more happiness and harmony, and which thoughts and actions are going to lead to more suffering, more conflict, more distress in our lives. And so we can, through the development of awareness, the deepening of wisdom, this ability to discriminate becomes stronger. And we can actually see this very clearly. If I follow this thought and action, this is going to happen. 
If I follow this thought and action, this is going to happen. If I have an angry thought, I'm feeling very angry inside, the energy in the body starts to move and the, bo- the body wants to start to act, whether it's through some kind of aggression of throwing a plate or knocking a table, banging my hand, or hitting another person. If I can catch that action somewhere along the way, I can affect the change, I can affect the result and pull back. If there's the wisdom, if there's the knowing that if I continue with that, it's just going to create more problems, more difficulty, more hardship, and I can possibly pull back. If I'm having a loving thought, and again the energy from that loving thought arises and starts to move the body, and I want to touch somebody, I can watch that and I can say, now is this something that's actually going to be helpful or is this something that's not going to be helpful right now? And determine that, discriminate. Is this helpful or is this not helpful? What is wise thought in the teachings of of the Eightfold Noble Path? What is wise thought? In the text, in the sutras, it says that Thoughts free from greed, thoughts free from ill will, thoughts free from cruelty. These are the thoughts which yield worldly fruits and bring good results in our life. So it seems quite useful to pay attention to whether the mind is filled with thoughts that are unwholesome, filled with greed, ill will, or cruelty, or whether the thoughts are filled with love and kindness and care. The Buddha says that whatever the mind dwells on frequently will be what the mind inclines towards. Whatever the mind dwells on frequently will be what the mind inclines towards. So if we allow the mind through, if we see, if we notice, that the mind is dwelling, is inclining towards negativity, and that continues, it just strengthens that pattern of negativity and destructiveness. We can, and we, we, we learn through the practices here in the teachings that there are many ways to give support to ourselves and to our minds to interrupt that process. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to interrupt that process where the mind gets caught in these habitual tendencies, these patterns of mind that lead towards more negativity. So we learn all these different practices to help ourselves when we see the mind inclining in a way that isn't helpful and that is hurtful towards ourselves and others. The practice of metta, This is a practice to help give support to the mind, to bring about more wholesome thoughts, more wholesome mind states, and through that with the possibility of leading towards more positive and wholesome actions in our lives. The gratitude meditation that we did, it lightens the mind, it brings joy to the mind. And if there's more joy, there's happier thoughts, more positive actions in the world. All the Brahma-Viharas give support to the mind in that way. 
One thing that's very helpful, and I was speaking to somebody today about it, that if you see your mind inclining towards negativity, whether it's negative judgment towards myself or towards somebody else, but particularly if you see the mind inclining towards self-judgment, self-hatred, it just keeps moving in that direction. We can actually give support to the mind by making an effort, having an intention to reflect on positive qualities, the opposite qualities. It can be helpful to actually write them down, to journal, to just remind oneself, to say, yeah, it's true, I do get angry a lot. I do seem to stay fairly depressed a lot. I do get quite nervous and anxious. However, I also see (laughs) that I'm actually quite loving much of the time, and I feel very generous, and I have a lot of capacity for kindness and care towards other people. And (laughs) it's really necessary to give some balance, because you can see how insidious the mind is in, in these patterns. It can get stuck in a groove, can just get stuck in dwelling on the negative. And through the teachings, we see there are ways we can help ourselves. We can give support to that, the weakness of that mind and bring more strength to the mind through reflecting on the positive qualities. I think this is something that's very, very helpful. Also, something that I see in myself is that I, I have a tendency towards aversion in my mind. Each person, according to the Buddhist psychology, each person fits into one of three categories. Their mind has a a tendency to be one of three ways. Either particularly greedy mind, looking after things it wants, things I want, want. Or an aversive mind, looking at things it doesn't want and doesn't like. (laughs) Or a deluded mind, (laughs) a mind that just doesn't notice. (laughs) Maybe from the response here, (laughs) there's more deluded minds. (laughs) But the fortunate thing is that every person falls into one of the categories, so you can't say, oh, I'd rather be in that one than that one. <laughs> so for me, I fall into the category of the aversive mind. And I just and I tend to see things I'm very critical. I see things I don't like and things that could be better and and then one thing how that manifests in when particularly when I'm in India, there's so much <laughs> there's so much that my mind is aversive to. And I find myself in quite an aversive state a lot of the time. (laughs) And, you know, whether it's a smell (laughs) or a sight or, you know, the the extreme poverty or the pollution or, you know, some of these senses getting assaulted on some level constantly again and again. And my mind would just turn and look at something and just dwell on it, you know, just like a pile of garbage in the street. And you say, 
how disgusting. <laughs> you know, maybe right across the road would be a woman dressed in beautiful, colorful clothes with, you know, jade jewelry and turquoise and coral, and I'd be looking at the pile of garbage. <laughs> You know, and and uh, the, <laughs> the truth is that I wasn't that aware I was doing that until my partner pointed it out. <laughs> and he said, he said, look over there. <laughs> look at the beautiful palm trees with the coconuts and how they hang down and the beautiful green parrot, you know, flying around the palm trees. He said, don't look at the pile of garbage. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was so fascinating as he really <laughs> began pointing this out. And sometimes I wouldn't even be conscious of doing it. And I would just be sitting like on a bus, <laughs> looking at somebody, you know, saying, "Oh God, how disgusting!" <laughs> and he would just he would just <laughs> tap me on the shoulder, and he'd say. Look Look out the window. You know, there's beautiful green rice fields we're passing right now. And it's wonderful because I, <laughs> I really finally got the sense of my, I, I could help myself. I mean, my partner certainly was helping me, but I didn't need to depend on him. I could get the message and start to help myself. And so it's really something that I've started to do now, is that I can catch myself a little more quickly. I just can see the tendency of mine to want to find what's wrong and then quickly just turn and see, yeah, there's something really beautiful here as well. Now, I can, I can, it's not that that's the only thing there is in the universe. It's that that's what my mind is selecting. That's where my mind is turning. But if I turn the mind another way, it's a whole different reality. It's a whole different perspective. That's why everything's so subjective. You know, there is no objective reality out there. So we can help ourselves. We can, but we, we need to recognize it. We need to see what we're doing. We need to, to feel and sense and know the ruts that the mind's getting stuck in and feel the consequences of that, the energetic consequences of when the mind gets caught. And say, okay, well, maybe I can look at this another way. How can I help myself right now? So it's really useful to pay attention to where is the mind inclining and even to maybe reflect on, you know, which, which category you fit into and then to help, help awaken the mind a little more in that particular pattern, whether it's greed, aversion, or just not seeing, <laughs> just not even noticing. Maybe there needs to be a little bit more effort to notice, to wake up to what's around. So these intentions, the intentions to help ourselves, the intention towards wholesome action is very important. Making, taking steps for transformation, for change in our life. I spent quite a long time in um, earlier years of my practice just looking at intention around speech. I was doing a lot of um, training around communication and because I was also doing a lot of meditation practice at the same time, and I could hear how important speech was in the teachings, intentionality, 
and also recognizing my own inability to speak in ways that were actually very helpful or or, uh, led to much harmony at times, I really started paying attention to my intention before I spoke. And when sometimes, sometimes I wouldn't even say something until I was clear about where I was coming from. Right now, if I say this, is this coming out of a place of wanting more harmony and um, happiness between me and this other person? Or am I speaking right now because I want to actually be hurtful and I want to get some revenge or I want to um, uh, be destructive in some way? And it's absolutely fascinating to start to watch that because there's so many times I saw and I was so surprised that I really did have the intention to hurt, that I really had the intention to get back at this person and to, to, to have a conflict so that that person would feel some pain. And it wasn't until I actually started paying attention, I, I had this idea, you know, we all have images of ourselves. You know, that we really are very loving and caring and uh, want the best for everybody. But when we start to look deeply and to start asking these kinds of questions, we find out all kinds of things. So it's possible to observe your intention, say, around speech. You know, if you take one thing, one thing, and say, see, where are you coming from? What's the result that you want? And, do you, and are you getting the results that you want? You can look at your intentions around anything. You take that as a practice. Hopefully catching your intention before you act, but sometimes even if you're already in the middle of the action, still possible to pay attention. What am I doing? What's my motivation here? So this intention is important. Intentionality in our practice, intention for transformation, and to bring about change. Without a certain amount of effort, nothing's going to happen. We just keep living out of our old habit patterns. You can see many, many people who have no intention to change, and they're just the same things happen again and again and again. And when we live out of our old habit patterns, the mind is just confused. When the mind is acting out of negativity and destructiveness, it's acting out of confusion. And there's no clarity. It's not possible to make positive choices for ourselves. So we do need to make an effort to bring about change, to break through the confused aspect of mind. It is useful to have a vision, some sense of purpose, some sense of direction, some, some intention for direction in our life, whether it's in our meditation practice, in our spiritual life, in our work, in our relationship, to have some intention for, for some positive result some wholesome result. 
And this helps us make wiser choices. It gives us some guide, some way to determine the direction of our life. But sometimes there can be too much effort. This, this particular aspect can be out of balance. There can just be too much effort. And we become attached to our goals. We become very ambitious and judgmental of our process, and we can feel very stressed and strained, impatient and frustrated because things aren't happening the way we want them to happen. We have too much investment in the result, in the consequence. There's too much of me, there's too much of I in the process. We want it to go faster, we want it to be different. We want things to happen now. And when they don't happen the way we want them to, then we can feel like a failure or we've done something wrong. We get very identified with whether there's a result or not. And we don't see that there's just this, 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 this holding of this vision and this purpose is out of balance. We've got too much of me in it, too much self-investment and taking too much responsibility in the outcome. If this is what's happening, then we need to let go. We need to let go. We need to let go of our expectations, our demands, and get out of the way. And trust. There needs to be more trust. And we have, this is a delicate balance between the intention for something to happen and the letting go the intention for something to happen, and the letting go. And these are two sides of the same coin, even though they can sound like they're opposites or contradictory. They're two sides of the same coin, intention and letting go, intention and surrendering of the result, of the outcome. In each moment, so fascinating. When I've looked at this for myself, I can see that in each moment there is the intention and the letting go, or the possibility for the intention and the letting go. If, any, if either one is out of balance, it's not going to work. If I've got too much investment in the, in the outcome, I'm holding on, and I think it's me, and I want it to happen like this, it's going to be painful. If there's too much letting go, too much passivity, too much, oh, well, it's okay, it's just going to happen the way it happens, and it doesn't really matter anyhow, and whatever, and it's all empty, and then <laughs> it's not really going to happen either. Mm-hmm. We may start to feel things are quite meaningless and purpose, purposeless, empty, and not really understand why we've lost a sense of aliveness for ourselves. So it's finding this balance between the intention and letting go. And what's so interesting as well, we can see again and again that even if we have the intention for something, we have no control over the result. We we don't know whether that thing is going to happen. I just talked to my, my mother last night. She was um, 
away for two weeks. She lives in Florida in America. And my father and her had a, a really big trip planned. They're in their 70s. And all, all my, all, as far as I can, re- as long as I can remember, my father has always wanted to go to Israel. He's a, he's a Jew, and he's never been to Israel, and it was his life's dream. And he's quite old now, and not that well. And so, and he doesn't even travel that much. And so they planned a trip to Israel. And they were going to go on a two-week cruise on one of those big cruise liners that was going to leave from Miami, stop in London, stop, stop, not stop in London, the cruise wasn't going to stop in London, but <laughs> stop on the shore and then go down around Africa and then up to, to the Middle East, to Cairo, and then to Israel, and then back around again. Really, this was a big thing. And they put a lot of effort into the planning and making it happen. And they were, they got, they were on the ship, and they went, and they got around to um, Cairo. And on the ship, my father must have eaten some bad food or something. And just before they were supposed to go on the tour of Cairo, which is one of the big highlights of the journey, he got some kind of food poisoning, and he wound up in the hospital. And he was on IV, and he was dehydrated, and he, was, he really thought he was going to die. And my mother stayed with him. So they were the only two people on this huge ship that didn't get to go to Cairo. Cairo. And so it was a very big disappointment. And my father got better. It didn't last too long, fortunately. And they were on their way to Israel. And because of the bombings that have been happening in Israel now, and the terrorist attacks, they couldn't land in Israel. The ship couldn't, they couldn't get off the ship. They couldn't get on, go onto the land in Israel. And so all the people who came in there, you know, a few hundred people, didn't get to go to the Holy Land. And so, so for my mother and father, in just, just last night, they just got back last night, the night before last, it was a huge disappointment something that my father had dreamed for, had hoped for, had a vision for his whole life. And he was right there. And it still didn't happen. Hmm? Tremendous letting go. Tremendous letting go. And something that, that for so long meant so much to him, and he couldn't have it. And it's unlikely that opportunity will ever come again. Life asks us again and again to let go. And yet we still have to put out the effort, have the intention, or nothing's going to happen. But we have no control over the result, the outcome. So we're continually asked to surrender, to surrender to the light, to life as it unfolds, to trust. To trust that there is some deeper meaning. There's some reason behind all of this. As I deepened into the understanding of these teachings, it's all kind of happening. It just has a sense that it's all sort of happening. So much seems 
out of control, out of my control. And I would hear the teachings of intentionality and making effort, and yet so much seemed out of control. And I started asking myself, well then, who's making the effort? If everything is just happening, everything seems to be happening in its own speed, in its own current, in its own momentum, then am I really making any difference? My ideas, my efforts, my choices, is it really having an effect? What's really going on here? Who is making the effort? I would hear in the teachings again and again, there's no one behind this process. See the empty phenomenon rolling by. There's no one behind this process. And yet they'd say, well, make effort. Make effort. And so for me, these teachings started to seem quite contradictory. You know, if there's really no one behind these processes, these thoughts, these feelings, these sensations, are all arising on their own. And we have no control over the outcome, no control over the result. What's really going on? And how much do I really have to do with whatever happens, anything that happens? Is there really anything to do? And I would just fall, I would try to experience in myself that sense of nothing to do, nothing to do, just surrender and let it happen and open to the the process, let it unfold. But I would still see that everything would still happen. You know, it's not like when when I just allow it to unfold, allow it to happen, that nothing happens. Everything still happens. Everything's taking place. There's still thoughts and feelings and sensations and sights and sounds and it's all unfolding. It's all playing. I finally understood in, this play, in trying to understand where this place of effort and intentionality plays in this seemingly empty play of, of events is that intention itself is just another arising mental factor. Just as a thought arises quite spontaneously, a sensation, a sight, a sound, a taste, happening spontaneously, quite on its own, so does intention. That impulse or the thought of intention is considered a mental factor. It just arises spontaneously as everything else arises. And along with that arises choice. With awareness and intentionality and discrimination arises a factor of choice, quite spontaneously. Everything that arises, everything that occurs, occurs of their own accord, responding to their own natural laws. They do not arise and pass according to our wishes. Not even intentions. Not even thoughts. Everything is arising according to its own natural laws. That's because we are nature. We, everything about us is nature. And we 
follow the same laws as nature itself. But everything is, is arising and occurring due to certain laws. It's all lawful. Just as the sun rises in the morning and goes down in the evening and the moon appears in a rhythm, lawfully, all the weather changes. Sometimes it's hot, sometimes it's cool, sometimes it rains, sometimes it's damp. This is all arising due to laws. Birth, old age, and death. It's a rhythm. It's lawful. So if we really go deep into this and understand this, then we really have to let go of whether there is wholesome intention that arises or wholesome mind states that occur. This is such a paradox. I mean, we can have the intention, the intention arises, But whether anything comes of that, we have to let go. Whether we actually have a wholesome mind state, whether we have a loving thought, we have to let go. We don't know what the outcome is going to be. And to help understand, this is to help understand this more deeply, to help understand what determines whether a wholesome mind state will arise or not. We have to understand the teachings of what's called the paramis, the force of our paramis. And paramis are what's called the accumulated force of our own purity. The accumulated force of our own purity the Pali word, this is a Pali word, parami. And it means the ten wholesome qualities in our mind, along with the accumulated power that they bring to us. And these ten wholesome qualities are generosity, morality, renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, resolve, loving-kindness, and equanimity. These are the ten wholesome qualities in our minds. And whether these arise in our mind or not is dependent on our past actions. Our past actions of generosity, loving-kindness, and our actions which help deepen our wisdom and our understanding. And it's these actions of the past, these conditioned actions from our past, which are conditioning the force of the purity that we experience now. That's how we have been in the past that determines what arises in the mind now. And it depends on how we are now and the actions that we, we are involved with now that will determine what arises in our mind in the future. But this whole force, this whole accumulated force that's in the flow is dependent on our own 
gradually accumulated purity. This is the power that becomes the karmic force that brings the blessing in our life. This is the karmic force that conditions all that arises, whether it's wholesome or unwholesome, is dependent on our past actions. That's what's moving. That's what's, that's a way to talk about this intelligence, this power that can seem much greater than this small, limited self who we take ourselves to be. There's a stream, there's a flow that's conditioned, that's responding lawfully based on actions from our past. So with the strengthening of, this awa- of our awareness based on our accumulated purity, comes the discriminate becomes the strengthening of our discrimination and our power to choose based on our accumulated purity. And it just gets stronger and stronger and stronger. Hmm? It's a very interesting formula for what's going on when it can all seem rather mysterious. Hmm? And as we develop these paramis, as these paramis become stronger in our mind, we experience what is called the essence of the Dharma. The essence of the Dharma. And the Pali word for this is Dhamoja. Dhamoja. The essence of the Dharma. This is Awakening to a reality which is beyond ego identification. Awakening to the essence of the Dharma. Dropping out of the conceptual realm of what we, how we know things to be, how we take ourselves to be, and we open to a vital, awake stream of consciousness. The essence of the Dharma. And I think we've all tasted this kind of experience when we've, when we've had that sense that we're really in the flow, that we really feel connected into some current, in, stream, in some stream, and there's a real sense of purity, uh, something that feels like it's happening all by itself, and it doesn't even make sense how it could be so, so alive and so pure and so beautiful. I had this experience once, when I was in Lucknow, India, uh, spending time with one of my teachers, Papaji. And I got very ill. Something happened, something that I ate, something occurred. And I got so sick that I was in bed and I was alone. And I remember at night I was so, so ill. I was shaking. I had high fevers. I was even somewhat um, disoriented. And then I would, I would sweat and the bed would get all wet and it would be cold and have to get up and change the blankets and then get back into bed and try to warm up. And it was, it was really distressful. But my mind was unaffected by any of it. 
I remember there was a power, there was a purity in my mind that was experiencing such light and such bliss and such joy as if what was happening in my body was completely irrelevant. There seemed to be something else going on that was so powerful that didn't even it matter that I might be dying. I mean, I really felt like I was almost dying. But this power of the mind was so strong. And through that experience, um, it, it, was, it, it was an experience that verified my faith in these teachings. That there's something that we can tap into, something that we can know, which has nothing to do with any of the conditioned aspects of nature, of our life. Something that we can touch into that is so beautiful and so pure that can carry us beyond these painful conditions of life. And tasting this and deepening our faith in this is the energy that pushes, pushes us towards liberation that pulls us towards liberation and freedom to something greater than our limited sense of ourself. There's a poem by um, a Tibetan master, Dai Kokushi. I don't know if this is going to make it on tape. There is a reality even prior to heaven and earth. Indeed, it has no form, much less a name. Eyes fail to see it. It has no voice for ears to detect. To call it mind or Buddha violates its nature. For it then becomes like a visionary flower in the air. It is not mind nor Buddha, absolutely quiet and yet illuminating in a mysterious way. It allows itself to be perceived only by the clear-eyed. It is Dharma truly beyond form and sound. It is Tao having nothing to do with words. Wishing to entice the blind, the Buddha has playfully let words escape his golden mouth. Heaven and earth are ever since filled with entangling briars. O my good worthy friends gathered here, If you desire to listen to the thunderous voice of the Dharma, exhaust your words, empty your thoughts, for then you may come to recognize this one essence. Let's sit for a few minutes together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.